Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hey, friends. Thanks for joining our podcast. I want to tell you about something really new and exciting called Patreon.com slash BP Show. It's a great way to get uh, exclusive interviews with newsmakers, voicemails, personalized videos, political commentary, and early access to a special podcast called The Making of Bernie Sanders. Go to patreon.com slash bpshow, patreon.com slash bpshow. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash Show. Well, good morning. This is Jason Dick. I am guest hosting the Bill Press Show this morning because Bill is uh, luxuriating in his Oscar win. Uh, Bill swept the Oscars last night. The Bill Press Show won Best Picture, Best Director. Actually, that's not true. Peter Ogburn, who is uh, in the chair opposite of me uh, in, in the booth, uh, was, was, did not get a Best Editor. Uh, but, you know, we, we're, we're hoping for next year. I was robbed, <laughs> frankly. I was robbed. And very upsetting. Speaking of that, Peter has a little bit of Full Court Pressage for you. This is the Full Court Press. Yes, indeed. Just a couple of other stories making news. You mentioned the Oscars, Jason. Let's start right there. Who won? Well, I've got a couple of winners here. Uh, the big winner of the night was The Shape of Water. Did you did you see The Shape of Water? I did. I did. I'm a Pisces. I had to have seen it. <laughs> well, it won Best Picture. The director, Guillermo del Toro, won Best Director. Uh, so, like, it was a big, it was a big, big night for The Shape of Water. I was very happy to see. I I loved that movie. I thoroughly loved that movie. And also, I should mention, too, Guillermo del Toro uh, is a man of Mexican descent. He is a Mexican, matter of fact. That's right. So that had to have just, you know, won plaudits from the White House as well. People have pointed out uh, that I, I think it was like the la- like four out of the last six best director wins right. were from directors of Mexican descent. Right. There's a, there's a, there's a trio of uh, Mexican directors, the three amigos, they call them. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I didn't make that up. You're thinking of the Steve Martin the movie. The Steve though. Martin, Martin <laughs> Chevy Short, Chase, Chevy yes. Chase. I used to watch that movie all the time when I was a kid. Uh, so anyway, it did very, very, very well last night, and, and rightfully so. Uh, Jordan, people were wondering how Get Out was going to do because it was such a different movie, yeah. and it was good that it got recognized so many times. It won Best Original Screenplay. Jordan Peele uh, was the uh, screenwriter there, so he won for Get Out. The first alumnus of Mad TV uh, to win an Oscar uh, for, for screenwriting, as our as our sometimes friend Brandon Weatherby points out. I completely forgot. That's absolutely, <laughs> that is very accurate. Thank I you, Brandon. I completely forgot about that. <laughs> Uh, by the way, other Oscar news. Do you, do you watch any of the red carpet stuff? I, I couldn't be. Bothered. I had to. I had to wash my hair. <laughs> Good answer. Well, here's the thing. 
E Entertainment News typically has a lock on these type of events, mm-hmm. right? They're there. They're right in the mix. So who is their main red, cor- red, red carpet correspondent? It's Ryan Seacrest. Now, Ryan Seacrest is in a little bit of trouble these days because of sexual harassment claims. So people were sort of watching and seeing what kind of interviews he got on the right. red carpet. And the thing is, not a lot. Mm-hmm. Not a lot. Four out of the 20 acting nominees, that's all he could talk to. Four out of the 20 no- uh, acting nominees stopped by Ryan Seacrest. The rest of them walked right by him. Completely. Home and Garden TV, I heard, just swept <laughs> up on the carpets. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So not not many people were interested in, in talking to Ryan Seacrest. There were some uh, people who were there that showed that he was like four slots down. Normally, they're right at the very top of the carpet, so they get in. That's like the first interview they do. That was the Joan Rivers slot. The, the right old there. Joan Rivers right. slot. Yeah, that's right. So, the, so they gave it to Ryan Seacrest, uh, and the, but they moved him down, so people were just walking right by him. And he was a couple of people got some uh, footage of him. That did he look forlorn? He was not. He was forlorn. Forlorn is a very good way to put it. Forlorn is a very good way to put it. Also, by the way, uh, not quite as entertaining, but still, gosh, a a story here in America. Vladimir Putin uh, over the weekend came out because we talk a lot about the Robert Mueller situation. He came out? He didn't come out. He came out and said uh, that if anybody is indicted. Any of the lucky un-13. Any of the (laughs) unlucky 13. Any of those people. If they are living in Russia, they will not be extradited to America. It was like never. He said like never, never. Never, ever, ever, ever. It was not going to happen. So if you think that Vladimir Putin is somehow going to cooperate with Robert Mueller, not that I ever thought that was going to happen, but if you (laughs) thought that that was going to happen, folks, I got bad news for you. He said he is not going to extradite anyone. So forget it. Well, uh, when an intelligence chief uh, turned president uh, he gets a chance to say no to an ex-FBI director, you take it every time. Absolutely. This is The Bill Press Show. Welcome back. I'm Jason Dick, guest hosting for the Bill Press Show. I uh, want to remind you, you can subscribe to us on YouTube at youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show, and you can follow us on Twitter at BP Show. I'm sure Peter is probably composing some witty tweet right now as we speak. Uh, Jason, I can't read or write. The, oh. So uh, Ray is doing all of the <laughs> tweets because <laughs> I can't. We, we weren't supposed to bring that up, I understand. Yeah. Well, that's why I'm in a you spoken know. word medium that's like radio. Right. I, I, I couldn't possibly read anything. Gotcha, gotcha. All right. So that's that's okay. It's all beginning to make more sense, sense now. All right. <laughs> um, moving from the, the world of high-powered uh, Hollywood, uh, we'll get into this a little bit more with my first guest, Alex Gangitano, who is Roll Call's Hurt on the Hill reporter. And is a perfect person to sort of segue into talking about Hollywood stuff and and some of what Jimmy Kimmel said in his monologue that was political. But I want to get into the way sexier topic of tariffs. Hey, now. Hey, now. All right, kids. (laughs) Parents, if you have kids in the car, we just want to warn you that some of the language might be of a mature nature. (laughs) So uh, this is kind of a a big deal, though. Um, I mean, when the administration announced tariffs on washing machines and solar panels, uh, it, it just happened to happen when my dryer was starting to go on the fritz, and I thought, well, I should probably buy a, a dryer pretty soon. Or, you know, I mean, it, it does sort of alter your behavior, especially if you're one of the affected companies like LG, 
which is one of the companies that had uh, tariffs slapped on it as, as washing machines. I guess Maytag would be just fine. Uh, but uh, now, last week, the the president announced sort of uh, n- not out of the blue, because he's certainly been talking about tariffs for as long as he's been in presidential politics, but before some of the uh, proper channels had been gone through, if uh, according to Gary Cohn, at least, or at least uh, some of the people who are the globalists in the, in the, in the White House. Um, and uh, we're gonna, so we're going to institute, or he's going to institute, uh, aluminum and steel tariffs of uh, 25% on steel and 10% on aluminum. Uh, he's he's uh, citing this part of the Trade Act of 1960, Section 232, uh, saying it's a national security emergency, which came as a surprise to a lot of national security people. Well, you know, uh, Donald Trump is a real policy wonk, as we've learned. So the fact that he's going back and referencing old legislation and old bills, like that doesn't surprise me. We know he's a real nerd about that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and to be fair, I mean, the, the president didn't bore uh, people with, uh, you know, citing Section 232. Right. That, was, that was the... That was the uh, uh, that, that was the thing for nerds like us. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but, he doesn't but, want to bore you guys but, with it. He's a real sort of, he gets a little wonky sometimes. But, but he had some super charismatic, awesome uh, people to carry that message, like Wilbur Ross. And I understand that we have some uh, footage uh, from the Sunday shows of, of Wilbur Ross carrying this, this dynamic message, a, di- a dynamic man carrying a dynamic message. <laughs> so, 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 Wilbur, wake up, buddy! <laughs> Wilbur! <laughs> no, sorry. Here, here's Wilbur Ross. The total amount of tariffs we're putting on is about $9 billion in a year. That's a fraction of 1% of the economy. So the notion that it would destroy a lot of jobs, raise prices, disrupt things is wrong. Now, I understand that uh, when he went on on uh, Meet the Press yesterday, he did not bring his can of Campbell's soup uh, and, the, and, the, and the Budweiser. <laughs> we know what Wilbur does uh, when he wants to party. Yeah. It's, it's tomato, <laughs> tomato soup and Budweiser. Uh, I mean, it, to show that, you know, on the one hand, you have the Campbell's soup ste- made out of steel can, and you've got the aluminum can of, of Budweiser saying that this is, like, no, really no big deal. Now, aside from just having an 80 year old billionaire who's posing in front like on Friday he went on TV with those two props and he was uh it looked like he was in Florida or something like that he had like there were some uh boats you know it was kind of like a like a fairly nice uh, thing in, in the back while the rest of us were going through wind mageddon uh aside from having uh, a billionaire uh say that food price spikes would be no big deal one of the things he la- leaves off in this message is that um you know, people who import steel to us are not going to be like, okay, cool, you got us now, Mr. Trump. Right. I mean, we're, they're talking about retaliatory, you know, tariffs from our allies like Canada, England, Germany. I mean, and over all over a relatively small amount of steel that we import. Well, that, that's kind of the thing with this that I don't think a lot of people understand, right? Like, you look at it on paper and you can go, yay, rah, 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 congr- yay, Donald Trump is standing up for us and he's going to bring these jobs back, which— I'm not so sure that they're ever going to come back. Frankly, I hate to be a pessimist, but like I just think we've we, we've lost that battle. Well, but- the Washington Post had this great front page article on on Sunday uh, from Ashtabula, mm. uh, Ohio, which is near Cleveland. It was this busy port. It was a big steel, you know, town. I mean, and and it's you know. It's empty now. Um, it, it's depressed. It's not not a happy place anymore. The factories are closed, and even the people, even the union guys there, are like, yeah. I mean, we're we're fairly certain it's not gonna like come back in in that sort of sense. I mean, they might. I mean, 
other industries might move in. If you go to Pitts- yeah. Pittsburgh, was a steel town at one sure. point, and now it is a biomedical town and a university and a robotics town. Uh, but they didn't re- they didn't reopen the steel mills in right. Pittsburgh, and I just don't see that happening. Right, number one, I just I, I think that we've just given up that fight, kind of to you know China specifically, but also. You know, you would have to really go in and do some major work to these factories to get them back up and running again. Maybe you could do that with some of the money that you get from these tariffs, but also the tariffs aren't high enough to make that happen. Right. So it's sort of like it's a total just a mess. But to your point, we think that we just are going to make this decision and make this happen and that it's over, that we have acted alone and we've put our foot down and the rest was of the it, world was it over when the germans bombed pearl harbor <laughs> no <laughs> right it's just like we're gonna we're gonna face some consequences right. for this and and that's that's apparently the thing so gary Cohn, the national economic advisor for the president i mean he was one of the big losers uh in this i mean he is a he's a democrat for one uh couldn't couldn't have seen that coming that they, the the <laughs> one the most prominent democrat in the white house uh, would lose a big battle on this but also i mean he is a Fairly died in the wool globalist, which which really like that that most Republicans or most Republican free traders in the estab- the establishment, the bedeviled establishment, um, they are they believe in free trade. If nothing else, they believe in free trade, and this really is not a free trade moment for them. <laughs> no, not at all. And it's like I I can't I can't believe that Gary Cohn is still there. I mean, we remember he he apparently wrote a resignation letter right after Charlotte uh, Charlottesville right, and that wasn't enough to get him out. Which, if you're in the administration after that moment, I think that's the moment that I could point to just be like, you know what? If you're in the administration after this moment, what the hell are you even doing there? Right. But he stuck around, right? He stuck around. Uh, now, now, somebody who did not stick around uh, uh, for for one one reason or another, uh, Reince Priebus. He was also on the shows, and he was he was saying that uh, you know in in the wake of the the tariff announcement and Hope Hicks resigning and Rob Porter on his way out, uh, you know, and all all this this flurry of good news coming out of the White House, uh, indictments by Robert Mueller, uh, that the president just wasn't getting enough credit for for the good things that are happening. He deserves, uh, you know, better coverage for the things that he's getting done. Um, And I just always try to focus people on the results as opposed to uh, the distractions. I love Washington, (laughs) D.C., where you can go (laughs) join an administration, get publicly humiliated. By by not just Trump, but the mooch. Yeah, by the mooch completely humiliated and then have to go back out and say nice things about the person that humiliated you. What what I don't get about Priebus is that, I mean, this guy has been in like politics and, and public service for, you know, you know, pretty much his adult life. Right. Um, so he's not he's probably not made out of money, uh, but he's not poor either. Like, right. is this really the only thing going is is like being, you know, kind of a. An apologist for the people, as you said, that that uh, that humiliated you. Why isn't he golfing or something? Exactly. <laughs> what does he need to do this for? But you know, to his to his point, I have this conversation all the time because I have a lot of Trump people in my family, right? A lot of Trump supporters in my family, and and one thing we agree on, right? When no matter which, and I, I talk about this a lot on the show. No matter which side of the aisle you're on, right? Which I'm clearly on one side and they're on the other, and that's fine. Which one? <laughs> I'm on Wright's previous side. 
no matter what. But pro like, swamp. But, but like, uh, you know, the news is just an avalanche, right? right? No matter where you where you fall, like you just have to admit this is just way uh, more chaotic than it usually is. And does Donald Trump get the credit he deserves, or get the credit he deserves? I, I I can't I have a hard time pointing to things that he is uh, like deserving to to be credited for. That's my problem, right? Like if that's their issue, right? That the media is constantly beating up on Trump and nobody's giving him credit and wow 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 all the time. It's just like what is it that you think he deserves more credit for? For the job stuff, for the economy? I I don't I mean even by like what Republicans say, like right. it takes some time for the economy to sort of figure out who's president. So this this gets back to one of my favorite topics, which is myself. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> uh, you're you're so a natural. Little little little, little known political uh, campaign of of 2016. Uh, I, I I didn't file any paperwork or anything like that, but it was just it was sort of a vague, amorphous uh, run run for anything really. I really just wanted to get the slogan out there, which was "Dick 2016, just give up." There you go. Uh, and now, now the, the the what I was looking for, and this is maybe why I never got off the ground, was I was looking for a running mate whose slogan would be slogan would be, "Just do nothing." <laughs> and the thing that I, I I really wonder about is like, let's say uh, Trump would have come into office last year, and literally it was like peace i'm golfing like every single day i mean like even more so than he does i was gonna now. say yeah. yeah like i mean he, <laughs> oh what a, what a weird concept <laughs> but like why not go down you know and and just just spend all of his time you know bathing in money you know and and just been like all right i'm president i literally don't need to do anything to be in the history books anymore i mean he arguably didn't have to before uh, but now, I mean, and and just let like don't don't mess with the health care, don't mess with the tax system because the, the way taxes were is the deficit was slowly going down. Like the jobs market would probably be like cool. We got somebody who's not going to mess with things too much, um, you know. So I mean, can you imagine what that would have been? Because right now, I mean, like yeah, you could argue that he signed a tax cut bill, and that that's a that's a nice thing. I mean, I got a little bump that I didn't need uh, in in my my you know. Paycheck. Congratulations on your Costco membership. <laughs> yes, <laughs> uh, I mean, but but like they exploded the deficit. You hand like as a, as a Republican operative, you hand an issue to Democrats who are running in red states. You know who they can say like I didn't vote for the tax bill because I didn't want to add two trillion dollars to the deficit. Remember, remember we cared about the deficit. Oh, that's right. When that was when Obama was president. Um, you know, it, it, it's just so if he would have just done nothing, would we be any? Better or worse, I think we we might actually be in better shape if he would just have done nothing. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think that one of the most telling moments uh, of the Trump presidency thus far was during the immigration debate, the DACA debate, and they were trying to get something done. And it wasn't Democrats that were out there beating the hell out of Donald Trump. It was Republicans mm -hmm. who were saying, like, Mr. President. Where do you stand on this? What right. would you like us to do? Where do you stand? You are the leader of the party. And Trump was just like, yeah, yeah, you guys figure it out. Right. And then when he did do something, he said, I'm going to cut off <laughs> this program that 90% of the population supports. No, don't, don't, don't do anything anymore, Mr. President. That's right. fine. No, please stop doing stuff. And then the courts came in and saved him. So today, is, you know, March 5th, this is the quote unquote, the deadline 
for the end of the DACA program, except that the court stepped in and said, actually, you can't do that. You have to keep like the DACA program. This is the deferred action for childhood arrivals. These are people who were brought to the country as young children, most of the time, you know, by their by their parents uh, and or overstayed, you know, visas, the, these sort of things. Um and and there, I mean, there's a widespread support for them. He chose to end that program. That was the big, <laughs> that was the big do uh, on that. And now that is is on hold even. So, I mean, he didn't. But that that didn't even. Nothing had to happen there either. No, no. <laughs> I mean, Bill always says that the 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 first year of Donald Trump's presidency, when a lot of presidents get a lot of stuff done and they sort of set in stone what their agenda is, right, moving forward, you've got. Uh, uh, Neil Gorsuch, which Donald Trump had literally nothing to do with, and you have uh, the tax stuff, which Donald Trump signed. Right. But, like, President Marco Rubio, President Ted Cruz, President Lindsey Graham, anybody else that was running for president in 2016 that was a Republican would have signed that. Right. So, like, I, I have a hard time saying, like, this is a signature piece of Trump legislation, right? That is just, like, the Republicans had power. They were going to get that done. No matter he, what. And he was very upfront about just saying, you guys figure it out. You guys figure and I'll, it out. And I'll sign anything. Yeah, he was very hands-off. Right. Uh, and and so this, the tariff, getting sort of sweeping back to the tariff thing, one of the things that, like, Gary Cohn and the people who are anti-tariff are saying is that if you really want to screw up a growing stock market, because that that's what people are, you know, kind of paying attention, people who have stocks people who have jobs uh, that they're not you know that they're not worried about like their company cutting back because their company is growing and so forth like th- this is a potential like sort of inflection point where people say like oh they impose tariffs and i work at a machine shop or whatever and guess what like we're charging more and there are fewer people buying stuff like and i just lost my job that's one point you can just point to trump and say like if he hadn't have done that i mean that's the risk that they're running yeah and, like, you pointed out that this was kind of t- t- took us by surprise, the tariff stuff. Uh, there was a lot of – there were a lot of people in the White House who were just like, we didn't know this was coming. Right. We didn't know this was coming. And the market reacted, by the way, o- almost immediately after right. this announcement. It dropped 500 points. Right. Yeah, um, the, which is real. That's real money. That's, that's real money. That that would be, uh, you know, my guess is that that would exceed nine billion dollars. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, right. <laughs> In a multi-trillion-dollar market. And you know, like, look, these the, the the stock market comes and goes, right? Like, it has ups and downs or whatever. But they're, like, every analyst that I read or saw on TV was just like, this can't really be seen any other way. This was right. a direct response to this announcement. One one of the things, uh, so our my uh, my my spouse Fawn Johnson, who is a, uh, a, a former guest of the show, yes, and, indeed, and future guest of the so show, future as well. guest of the show, excellent. Uh, we're running the antitrust newsletter at, at Bloomberg Law. Uh, she's got a lot to say about some very interesting stuff. Anyway, she so she had to buy a car uh, recently because the the old one died, uh, and that was actually on our mind last week. Was you know, when, because I saw a letter from the Auto Dealers of America oh, uh, th- who wrote to the White House and said, this sucks. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, because, like, it's flat already. I mean, like, like, like demand for cars and automobiles is flat already. Fewer people are driving. Thanks, millennials. Uh, <laughs> Ray. <laughs> um <laughs> Peter and I drive yeah. big, gigantic, That's dumb it. cars. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> trucks. What's wrong with you guys? <laughs> Driving is the best. Um, 
But, you know, the, demand is flat. Uh, prices are down. Uh, and and this this was sort of borne out. I mean, like we were the benefit of it, like you know, because the there there are fewer people buying cars, so we were able to actually buy a, a car, a Corolla, uh, for less than I paid in two thousand six for a brand new car. Uh, but the, you know, the auto dealers are like, "What is going on? Like we're gonna we're dying here, guys." It's so silly. It's just silly. Like it it's it's almost like right like. It's not the, like, just go away and don't do anything presidency. Right. It's like, we're going to do something, but we don't really know what it means. Right. We're just going to do something for the sake of doing something. Right. Ugh. It's like Bush, Bush got into a, a lot more trouble for trying to remake the world uh, in, yeah. in 2001, 2002, 2003 with Iraq and Afghanistan. Who could have foreseen the problems, though, really? You know? <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, th- then, then probably the guff that he got for saying "Watch this drive," you know, on on, on the weekend of uh, you know before the nine eleven attacks. I mean, it, it's just, I I mean, when you when you go into a situation trying to remake it for and and don't really understand what it, that's when the problems kind of start. That's a very good point. I think that just sums up a lot of uh, the way that people govern these days, right? Like, even Obama on some stuff, right? Like, it's not just – you can't just do the job and maintain the course right. and keep things going, even though, for the most part, the Obama administration was relatively scandal-free and they ran a pretty tight ship. Mm-hmm. But, like, Donald Trump isn't content to just sit there and just let things happen. Right. He's got to get his hands in it somehow. He's got – and, and uh, it's like the, those, those hands, when they get, when they get boy, places. Oh, boy. <laughs> well, it's like the gun thing, right? This this roundtable on the guns last week, I, I was talking about it the day after it happened. I don't believe that he's actually going to stick with what he said, but to see him say that was mind-boggling. Right. Mind-boggling. And it's just one of those things that he just can't help himself. He just can't just shut up. Well, and and that may be, I mean, part of the appeal, right? I mean, sure. th- th- that like that this is that he goes into situations instead of going into some stuffy hearing and sending along, you know, somebody from the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms to make the point that, well, you can do this, but you can't do that. And there's the Constitution and, you know, the blah, blah, blah. And, and th- this is the extent of the regulatory system we can put in place and just put people to sleep even more so than Wilbur Ross on any kind of show. Uh, you know, Trump brings the cameras in and just sort of says what's on his mind. Yeah. And and that that does have obviously an appeal, you know, well, that, that's like he's really shaken things up. Yeah. And this is, again, one of the things I've talked to uh, uh, with my Trump supporting family members. Right. <laughs> is like the Democratic candidate for president 2016 sort of tried to tow whatever line needed to be towed, right? right? Tried to give a message to every single person. Tried to be everything to everyone. And Donald Trump stood on the stage of the Republican National Convention and would just just say stuff. Right. And say, I will deliver this. I will give you this. Only I can fix Only it. Only I can <laughs> fix it. And, like, look. We, having spent plenty of time in hashtag this town, know that that's just not how things work. And there are a lot of things he promised he was going to get done that aren't going to get done, haven't gotten done. But it didn't matter to voters. Right. You had someone up there that would definitively say, boom. Right. Whatever it was. Now, and and maybe this this is a great segue coming here uh, to... Some some news that got a little tiny bit buried uh, as the weekend was starting. 
that the, when the president went down to his Mar-a-Lago estate on on Friday, there was a Republican uh, fundraiser. He spoke at the at this fundraiser, and uh, and and was commenting about President Xi in 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 China, and saying that hey, you know, this is kind of this is kind of cool. You know, he he just made himself president for life. Uh, you know, he's he's a great guy. Maybe we should maybe we should try that. I want to read exactly uh, what what he said. This was in a closed door meeting at Mar-a-Lago Golf Club on Saturday. Uh, I'm reading directly from Vox.com. Quote, Trump praised the Chinese president's recent power grab and said he wouldn't mind trying it himself, according to CNN, which managed to obtain a recording. Now he's president or he's now quote, he's now president for life, president for life. No, he's great. Trump said, quote. And I look, he was able to do that. I think it's great. <laughs> Maybe we'll have to give it a shot someday. Maybe we'll have to give it a shot someday. So, like, <laughs> Ray and I were talking about this last week. We are essentially becoming a planet of dictators. Yeah. Like, that's where we're heading. Right. That's but, where we're heading. Yeah, d- democracy is not uh, super healthy right now, particularly <laughs> when when you have, I mean, like, the, again, for all of the complexities that went into the founding of this country. I mean, we are still regarded as a beacon uh, of of hope, a beacon of democracy. We take people in. We make a, a stronger union uh, through many one. And when you have the president basically saying like, yeah, that sounds pretty cool. Why don't we try a dictatorship? Uh, and then, you know, he makes overtures towards people like uh, Rodrigo Duterte and Philippine in the Philippines and Vladimir Putin. I mean, this does not really help uh, the image of the United States as a bastion of democracy and checks and balances held together where the, that were a, a a place of rules and law and not just men. I mean, it's it's really. I mean, there's no other, you know, <laughs> there's no other way to to look at that. I don't think. No, no. <laughs> I mean, I say this all the time. We're living in hell. <laughs> well, what would be, I mean, here, here was the thing, too, the, the, you know, actually, on that. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you caught that some of the uh, appreciations of David Odgen Stiers, who played Major Winchester on MASH. He, yeah. he died on Saturday. He did, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, died of cancer, 75 years old. One of the, among some of the MASH tributes, I mean, as, as Twitter does, it sort of starts to veer off in different directions, right? And one of the uh, exchanges that they brought up was the, this exchange between Alan Alda and I can't remember who played the, the Padre, Father Mulcahy. But when, you know, Hawkeye, played by Alan Alda, says, you know, they say war is hell, but war, war is war and hell is hell. And the, the priest, Father Mulcahy, says, like, well, what do you mean? He says, like, well, you know, who's in hell? And and the Catholic priest says, well, uh, sinners, uh, people who don't repent, people who don't, you know, become Christians. He says, right. So there are no innocents in hell, but in war, war is filled with innocence. It's filled with people who are there not by choice, and that makes it far more worse. So are we in are we in hell or are we in a political war, Peter? That's I never really thought of it that way, but that's pretty spot on. I'm going to leave that right there, and then we're going to we're going to welcome our uh, our next guest. The roll calls heard on the Hill reporter Alex Gangitano, who we will discuss some of these issues and a few lighter ones too. This. 
This is the Bill Press Show. Welcome back to the Bill Press Show. I am your guest host, Jason Dick. I'm the leadership editor at Roll Call. Uh, I am joined in studio right now with by Alex Gangitano, whose roll call is heard on The Hill Reporter. Welcome, Alex. Thank you, Jason. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, if you'd like to follow Alex on Twitter, uh, that would make her day and all of ours. <laughs> uh, also, she can be followed at, at, at Alex Gangitano. That's G-A-N-G-I-T-A-N-O. Um, let's talk a little bit about the Oscars. Uh, we, we, uh, it, it was it was. I think people were expecting something a little different. Uh, Peter and I were talking a little earlier that Ryan Seacrest uh, did did not get very many uh, interviews on the red right. carpet. He was pushed down. Uh, he's been accused of sexual harassment, so perhaps not a surprise. Uh, I should mention also that the reason that Bill is absent and I'm, I'm here is that he is actually consoling Ryan Seacrest. He's telling him, <laughs> "Don't look into the void. Just come clean, Ryan." Uh, don't and and but but don't jump off that cliff in Maui, uh, and and that uh, but but the Jimmy Kimmel you know who has become somewhat of a political actor himself right. he inserted himself into the healthcare debate uh, by, by telling stories about how his his child I mean he he's lucky because he's you know got money and he can pay for medical very expensive medical procedures to keep his young child alive who had a heart defect born with a heart defect but that's not the case with everybody anyway he was the host for a second year in a row. Uh, and and he he made a, f- a few comments, you know, a, a, about this. I mean, it was it was a more subdued um, monologue. The first one he made was when he was talking to Jordan Peele, who became the first African American mm-hmm. to to win a uh, best uh, screenplay Oscar. He said to him, you know, Donald Trump even said that this is the first three quarters of a movie, uh, best three quarters of a movie ever. <laughs> <laughs> Which will only make sense if you've actually seen the movie. <laughs> but you should see it because it's an excellent film. Uh, and then also when he was talking about Call Me By Your Name, uh, he, he said, "We, you know, Call Me By Your Name, we don't make movies like Call Me By Your Name to make money. We make them to annoy Mike Pence. Uh, right. and, and, and again, if you've not seen that movie, it is a, it is a romance movie. It is, it's a love story, and it just happens to be between two men. Uh, so it would, uh, it, would, it would certainly seem to offend uh, or... or Annoy at the least, Mike Pence. Mm-hmm. So uh, you, I mean, in in your capacity at Heard on the Hill, you cover a lot of these celebrities, uh, as as sometimes we call them. Mm-hmm. What um, what is the effect? How do people in Congress react to to you know people, movie stars, kind of talking about culture and talking about politics? What's the effect? Right. I think the biggest Kimmel has mm-hmm. been something that is kind of an interesting way to look at what the effect of, of someone on TV can be like, because every time he'll say something, especially with the healthcare debate, like you were talking about, people, Democrats especially, will be tweeting out, hey, Kimmel had such a good message last night, you should watch it, et cetera. So I think they use it in this advocacy standard, but unless he comes to Capitol Hill and has a testimony or teams up to help on legislation or something, there isn't much like concrete that he can do besides just spread the word, which, you know, helps, obviously. Um, It can't hurt. But and I thought it was kind of interesting. He said, I believe it was when he was opening the Oscars, like um, help the Parkland students like attend the walk, little things like that. Students are going to be watching that and see okay, that's something that I should get involved with. And so he obviously is making a difference, but in terms of actual hard legislation, um, I'd be interested to see if he actually does come up to the Hill soon because it seems like something that would be up his alley. I mean. And and one of the things that he... So he 
got a little involved in this too, not just because of his his son, but because Bill Cassidy, the senator, mm-hmm. the Republican senator from Louisiana, who's also a doctor, uh, he he went on the show. He went on Kimmel's show, and <clears throat> excuse me, and he he said that he wouldn't ever vote for anything that didn't um, pass the Jimmy Kimmel test, which he defined as something that wouldn't uh, kick anybody off health care, that people would be able to afford coverage and so forth. And then when he voted for to re- to repeal Obamacare, I mean, Kimmel kind of called him out on it and said, I mean, he he came on the show and he lied. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, it was a very sort of direct intervention and also because of Kimmel's personal story with his son mm-hmm. and his son's health problems. I mean, it, it, it made it this vivid moment. Yeah, that kind of intervention and calling him out is something that is slightly shocking, like to see somebody in this Hollywood capacity like talk to a senator like that. It's something you don't always see every day because a lot of times senators won't even go on a show if they think they're going to be called out. And Bill Cassidy did because he kind of, I feel like, thought they were on the same team and they were doing this thing together. And then and then Jimmy Kimmel called him out for not for voting the way he, that he did. So I think that was something that um, definitely put Kimmel on the map in terms of like, Okay, he's not just going to prance around like the issues, um, especially if he has a politician and um, on his show. And I don't know if Bill Cassidy really wants to go on his show anytime soon again. You know, the other thing about this that I that I think is so interesting, it, it just kind of shows how cable news has sort of poisoned the way that we uh, uh, digest news, right? Because it's so much, it's so based on access. Mm-hmm. And I, 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 the Kimmel thing is a great example, right? Like Jimmy Kimmel, it doesn't matter if he gets Bill Cassidy back on a show ever again or not, right? Like it was a weird thing for him to go on to begin with. But he can come out and he can actually call exactly, call it exactly how he sees it. Because if Bill Cassidy gets mad and doesn't come back, who cares? He doesn't care. And it's the same thing. Like There's C- no clamoring for Bill Cassidy. Right, 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 right. The, the late night show. audience is not going to like tune out because there's less Bill Cassidy yeah. in the mix. It's not like, like, he's not like the Burt Reynolds for, the, was for Johnny Carson. Right. You know? Burt Reynolds, Dom DeLuise, and Bill Cassidy all together on Johnny's couch. Uh, and, and then like, I also had this thought when, with like the CNN town hall a couple of weeks ago. The students that stood in front of Marco Rubio and just... Gave Let it to him. him have it, mm-hmm. right? Like when they, uh, I remember the one student that asked about the NRA, will you take any more money from the NRA? And Marco Rubio would not answer the question, and the student just would not take that as an answer. He kept pushing and pushing and pushing because these politicians, they have a rehearsed answer right. for everything on how to get away from what they were just asked about and bring it back to something else. And cable news, for the longest time, universally, I'm just not just lets uh, people do their talking. Uh, points. It's not. Fo- it's not just right. Fox News. It's Fox. It's CNN. It's MSNBC. It's all of them. They just let them get their talking points out, and then for the sake of having a good show, they don't just park it and get the answer that they need out of them. They just let them get away with that. And and I think that the time for that is sort of come and gone. Mm-hmm. Well, and one thing that um, an- another thing that has changed so much, you know, is, I mean, we keep on coming back to social media, Alex. And the the thing that's fascinating to me is that the no, very few members of Congress, very few members of the public, you know, like service, you know, community or political community have been able to match up to Donald Trump in the way he uses Twitter and Mm -hmm. the way that he uses social media. 
um, until the 17-year-old kids from Parkland right. <laughs> started. I mean, they are expert trolls. <laughs> and, and, and it is amazing that, they, that they're the one, the one thing that they are just not allowing to happen, which is it sounds basic, is a 71-year-old president to continue to control their preferred method of, of communication. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, why did it take so long? Right. On this. <laughs> That's their turf. Like, right. Yeah. And I think it's might be like a generational thing. Like I was watching the NRA thing when he was questioning Marco Rubio and I was like, it is so fascinating that he is talking to a senator like this. Mm-hmm. But it, I mean, it's not inappropriate or whatever. It's just interesting that the 17 year old is like, I, I don't care who you are. You're not saying what I want you to say. So I'm going to call you out on it. And then to think like, OK, well, it's nice that he's 17 and he he's seen horrific things in his life already which is awful but like maybe i don't know if you go through then college and start the working world and you kind of change like okay i'll be more respectful to these people and they've made through far and so far in their life like he's like i don't care who you are you're not saying what i'm questioning you on and i'm gonna keep bugging you on live tv and i think that's it's it's something that was very refreshing. It's also kind of like I, I, I'm reminded of the Bane quote from The Dark Knight Rises. Like you merely adapted. <laughs> Me too. You merely you merely adapted to the dark. We were born into it. We were molded by it. Mm-hmm. Like these kids, they grew up with social media. Right. Like they are the social media generation. Like right. mm-hmm. to them, Twitter is kind of lame. Yeah. Right, exactly. They've already moved yeah. on. They've already yeah. moved on. Like Facebook. What was Facebook? Right. That was cute. Like they're like. <laughs> They don't even know about. They that use anymore. your favorite medium, uh, Snapchat. <laughs> yeah, there, right. right? <laughs> like because Peter loves Snapchat. Mm. He I loves Snapchat. I just can't with Snapchat. <laughs> I don't oh. get it. I officially like. I, we talked about this. Like Snapchat, people will try and show me Snapchat, and I just look at it and just go, you know what? I think that's the first thing they can point to. And just like, eh, I'm too old for that. Uh, I'm a big Snapchatter. <laughs> Are you? I think I've I've figured out how to almost master it. But then again, those 17 year olds would probably be like. Oh no! You don't even know the the first thing about it. Yeah, like I I have no clue. <laughs> I have like my my kid, my thirteen year old had a meltdown a couple weeks ago because Snapchat apparently did a huge redesign that nobody likes. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> news to me. But, but I was just Breaking like, news. I, but I was like, I feel for you. I guess I, I don't know. I I'm still mad that they replaced uh, the 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 bartender on Cheers with Woody Harrelson. <laughs> like, <laughs> Like I don't, I don't, I don't really. I can't relate, kid. Yeah, I mean, so this this is kind of interesting though, because members of Congress, like they, they get kind of proud of themselves for using basically aging social media <laughs> structures. I mean, like, mm-hmm. I mean, and and some are getting like fairly decent at it. Like, there's some members of Congress who try to go like mano a mano with Trump. You know, Adam Schiff, who's mm-hmm. the Intelligence Committee's. Uh, top Democrat in the House, Ted Lieu. Mm-hmm. Uh, but by and large, they just use it as like a press release machine. Right. And I mean, even the senators who have Snapchats or the members of Congress, they're just like videos of them standing right. in a field and they're saying, I just went to this town hall. And it's right. it's in nice that they're trying. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, I'm envisioning Chuck Grassley's Snapchat. Which is oh, what must we? It's but, nice. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's kind of cute that he is trying, <laughs> but at the same time, it's like not anywhere near what people use Snapchat for nowadays. Right. Um, I, th- I think the best way to put it is uh, senators using social media dot 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 
bless their hearts. Right. Bless exactly. Their hearts. <laughs> yeah, and and Booker is Booker seems to use it. Almost, Cory Booker, uh, who you know could be running for president for all we know mm-hmm. uh, at, at this point, he seems to use it more just as a as a more immediate selfie. Yeah, I think he goes for the let me show you the behind the scenes of where I am, which is nice. But he, he does it a little less of pushing issues or using it as a press release. But it's kind of like a selfie. Like he could be an actor using it too. It's not. It doesn't really convey like senatorial to me. I don't know. You know what I mean? Will this be a sign of the apocalypse when Trump starts using Snapchat? Oh man! Oh God, Jesus! I haven't mean, <laughs> even thought of that. I don't even know. <laughs> Um, so let's talk a little bit about, um, so we, you know, we've, we had the Oscars yesterday, the gridiron was Saturday and, and the, the big news was that Trump went and he, he, uh, for, for every sort of self-deprecating joke he made, like just another, you know, easy week at the white house, uh, which was, you know, kind of funny, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he also said like, he hopes Joe Biden runs against him cause he'd beat him the most easy, he would be the easiest person to beat. And so forth. it was kind mm-hmm. of a weird thing. Um, I mean, the gridiron's a little weird, too, um, <laughs> it, it, as, as far as dinners go. But we have the fun dinner coming up, yes. Alex. Let's talk about tomorrow night's congressional dinner for the uh, the Washington Press Club Foundation's congressional dinner. So what I love about the congressional dinner is it's totally off the record, and you just are sitting next to whatever member of Congress you decided to bring, and you get to just, like, have dinner and hang out with them. And it's usually you can invite people based on who you want to you know, get to know better or maybe get to source yourself with for mm-hmm. later. Um, and then they give speeches that two members will emcee to an extent. And those are usually you see these members in a different capacity than you right. see them. Um, like and they, and they, so they usually pay for I mean, the, the two keynoters is usually a Democrat and a Republican. They mm-hmm. keynote, they they pay somebody to write their jokes for them. Right. You know, you know it, I mean, yeah, it, it's, it's a stand up routine almost yeah. who are generally like 20 years younger than them and right. and, and can write their speeches. But um, like Tim Scott last year was hilarious. This is the Republican senator from from South Carolina. He went on Peter's about home state. Yes, indeed. Oh, yeah. Yes, indeed. Um, he went on about how the CBC doesn't necessarily accept him, the Congressional Black Caucus, um, and was like showing photos of different members who he claimed to be blacker than. Um, and it was, it was really funny. It's kind of the same, like you were saying, the gridiron. All of these are self-deprecating humor, but that's what you know the members of the media. The what we find funny. Um. <laughs> one one thing that the gridiron does have on the congressional dinner is that I, it doesn't sound like we're going to have a lot of people dressing up in drag. Uh, but but that and that's a big part of the skits that they do at the gridiron. <laughs> there's there's a yeah. lot of there's a lot of uh, older men dressed up as women, uh, <laughs> and w- which is usually not. I mean, it was totally cool if you're into that. But like they 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 don't normally you know they, uh, do do this. Um, but you have a your guest for the congressional dinner uh, is is none other than. Bringing Senator Doug Jones, mm-hmm. new from Alabama. Um, and yeah, I just last year I also took a new senator. I took Todd Young, who had just been um, sworn in at the time. But He's a Republican senator from Indiana. So. Yep. And he, um, I thought it was kind of an interesting idea to bring somebody who Todd Young had been from the House. And so he'd been to the dinner like once or twice, but kind of was still new to the Senate. Mm-hmm. Um, and Doug Jones has been around D.C. for several years, but this is the first time he's been in the Senate as well. So it's kind of just a fun idea. 
Um, Because then three years ago, I took Debbie Dingell and John Larson, um, two Democrats in the House who have been around for fairly, uh, or Debbie Dingell's husband, they've been around D.C. for a long time. Mm -hmm. And so they, you know, knew the dinner, knew the whole thing. It wasn't a big deal. And then um, it's great. Like Doug Jones's office has so many like questions and, oh, what should he wear a suit or a tux or whatever? And um, it's it is black nice. tie optional. Yeah, we should state. So uh, if, if, if anyone's going out there listening and, and wondering, <laughs> yeah. they're just pouring over their closet right now. Yeah. I literally yeah. sent them a photograph of me from last year and said, I don't, I don't know, judge it by what the men are wearing in this photo. Um, so it is it's nice to kind of get a fresh face, so to say. And a little bit more about the the dinner. It's the Washington Press uh, Club Foundation. So the the Washington Press Club was the it was the women's press club for years when the, when the National Press Club uh, did not admit women members, and it, it sort of it grew out of that. When they merged the two press clubs and they allowed women to to become members of the National Press Club, the Women's Press Club became a foundation eventually, and it's dedicated to you know basically scholarships, particularly for for women in underrepresented uh, communities, mm-hmm. uh, they do an oral history project for women journalists. It, it's a it's it's for it's for a good cause. The money is for educational programs that's raised from the dinner. Uh, the the um, headliners this year uh, we're pretty excited about it. It's mm-hmm. uh, Ileana Rosletnin, uh, the Republican congresswoman from uh, Miami, who is retiring, and so she can say whatever she wants, that's and she usually best. does. Uh-huh. <laughs> She is wonder. She is hilarious. She has no filter anymore. Right. As do many of the the many of the retired members do not have filters. Um. And so yeah, I was very excited about her. Yeah. And then and her counterpart is is Chris Coons, the Democratic senator from Delaware. And what what's great about Coons is that like I mean. He was he wasn't even really supposed to be here, and he, st- he still seems to sort of take that approach. I mean, he was like a county executive in Delaware. Mm. He was kind of the sacrificial lamb in 2010 because he was going to run against Mike Castle, the Repu- longtime Republican congressman from Delaware, and get slaughtered. And then they <laughs> nominated uh, God. I'm, her name is escaping me, but she she was the. I'm not a witch. I am not a witch. Uh, mm. Oh, wh- how could this escape me? Because Christine. O'Donnell. O'Donnell. Right. Christine, Christine O'Donnell. Christine O'Donnell. Uh, and Coons won and, and served out Biden's term after Biden was elected vice president and then won his own full term. Yep. Uh, he's very funny. He's very self-deprecating. Year, years ago, he was one of the headliners, and he uh, mm. uh, he, he opened up. He, he had a, he had us in, in the palm of his hand. He said, uh, my, uh, my comments will be brief. I am always short uh, because he's like 5'3". <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's great. By the way, I have to get – this is a little bit from the Wayback Machine. I had to look it up because I couldn't remember what year it was. But it was 2014. Politico headlined, the most painful speech ever. So it was Donna ba- Edwards? Donna Edwards. <laughs> so it was a bad day for Rep. Donna Edwards on Thursday when Washingtonians gathered at coffee pots and lunchrooms across town and deemed her performance at Washington Press Club Foundation annual dinner Wednesday night to be the most painful speech they've endured in a long time. Now – Here's the backstory. We're sort of at fault for that. It's sort of our fault. <laughs> I knew it. Because knew she it. was on the show, and we had her on with another comedian, Liz Winstead, mm-hmm. who created The Daily Show. Mm-hmm. And after it was over, they said, hey, we really want Liz to write her speech. Can you give us the contact information? I said, oh, that would be great. <sighs> So Liz Winstead wrote the speech, which turned out to be the most painful speech. 
Right. <laughs> like right. forever. No, it usually, I mean, for, so for, for members out there who may be approached in future <laughs> years, uh, the, the lesson is have somebody who knows you well yeah. write your material. Yeah. Even right. if somebody is works for The Daily Show. And, and you would think, that what a dunk, right? I mean, that's a total sure. like layup, you know, to, to, to have somebody from The Daily Show write a satirical piece. And I, I was there, too, and it was. I can I can say definitively, it's the, it was the most painful speech that I've I've listened to. And, and by the way, if you don't like your boss very much, just have just reach out to me. I'll make sure you guys, <laughs> I'll get you somebody who really, really sucks. You can embarrass your boss publicly. Yeah. That's, that's one of the things I'm very good at. Well, I'm, I'm sure that the Edwards campaign, because so she, she's running for yeah. Prince George's County mm-hmm. uh, executive, I'm sure that she's loving, the, the campaign people love to, to revisit this episode. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> well, a colleague and I were laughing about the lineup um, this year, and we were like, they should only do retiring members yeah. because it's so much safer. <laughs> they probably would be more likely to agree to do it, mm-hmm. and they're going to say whatever they want. Yeah. Or she is. Chris yeah. Coons is not retiring, for the record. But, um, yeah, I think it's it's going to be awesome to have her. <laughs> it, it, one, one other thing about Coons, too, this is a little bit of weird trivia Coons, uh, he he frequently finds himself in these like sort of weird positions. He was like sort of right place, right time. I mean, you got to run somebody, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you know, and and he he's he's a good senator from almost all accounts. He has bipartisan uh, support and and colleagues. Uh, during the 2012 earthquake, uh, the, the, I, I I was in town. This is one of those like weird episodes in Washington history. You know, when you see the buildings wave, mm-hmm. uh, they had to move a session of Congress because they were doing these pro forma sessions. They had to move a session of Congress. Out of the Capitol, the first time they had to convene a session mm-hmm. of Congress, even a pro forma session, outside of the building since the British burned it in the War of 1812. <laughs> it was uh, it, it was one of those moments. And, the, you know, what they did is they just went to the Postal Museum <laughs> across from Union Station. And and Chris Coons was the presiding officer for that, like that, that first since the 19, early 19th century. Uh, session of Congress to be held outside the Capitol, and and we've got this great picture of him on roll call, you know, the, the in in our archives of him, you know, he's got a briefcase, you know, and he's just like walking in in the Upper Senate Park. He's like, just uh, <laughs> just yeah. another day at the office. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's great. Awesome. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, so he, he should be great. I also I also uh, should mention too that. Uh, it, um, I'm a, I'm on the board for the Washington Press Club Foundation, so I'm and I'm not uh, again. We're, I think we've sold out, so you know we're not or uh, we're, we're close to it. So I'm not I'm not hawking tickets or anything like that. Uh, but I just thought I'd mention it because this uh, a lot of people. I mean, the White House Correspondents' Dinner is kind of a zoo. Uh, mm-hmm. The Gridiron and the Alfalfa Club are like it's sort of a different. I mean, the people are, they wear tails, you know, like you know it's, it's white, yeah. white. Yeah, it's a different sort of atmosphere. This is one of those dinners that's like. It's it's fun. It's focused almost entirely on Congress, and mm-hmm. that's that is kind of its charm, right? It is special because we're all in this congressional bubble together, and right. then to actually be able to celebrate it outside of the halls of Congress is is fun, and it's it's celebrating journalism too. So who can argue with that? Now, um, <laughs> your relationship with with Doug Jones. I mean, you you did a you do a feature for for Heard on the Hill called Take Five, where you you ask five questions that that have. Uh, less to do with legislation, more about getting to know you as as, as a person. Uh, and you were the—I think you were one of the first interviews that Jones, you know, did after he was sworn in. Correct? Yeah, it was exactly a week after he was sworn in that it published. So I talked to him five days after he was sworn in, and um, yeah, I really just the, as soon as Christmas break hit, I I was emailing them, hey, <laughs> let me let me in there, which I often do um, when these. Um, members are coming in fresh because it's great to kind of be like, okay, it's been 
you've been here for three days. How's it going? (laughs) (laughs) And they always say the, like he said, it's the reception has been amazing. I've been shocked of how many people come up and say hello to me. Things like that are just like so interesting to hear um, because once they go through that they've been here for months, those things kind of fall to the wayside and they're working on on policy issues or whatever. Um, But the one thing I loved about his is I ask everybody what their pet peeve is, mm-hmm. which has been very difficult. Like people, that's it's so funny because they just sit there and what did other people say? What would you say to try and think of ideas? And Doug Jones just sat there and just goes intolerance <laughs> and was done. <laughs> like had no other. Like it was he didn't in his say, mind. He didn't say Auburn or right. Or, yeah, or, right. <laughs> and it was constituents now. Was, yeah, it was exactly. like I mean. <laughs> He did run his campaign on that. You know, obviously it's an issue that's important to him, but the way he was so, like, serious and that's 100% the answer that he had and he was ready to move on. And it was great. It was, and it, it, I was reading it in my in my story. It just said intolerance, period. Period. Next. <laughs> yeah, I mean, proud. I mean, I, I'm, I, for one, especially in the wake of Trump and in the reality TV show that we see at the White House, I'm all for being proud fuddy-duddies again in public service. Mm-hmm. Like, let's get some dorks back in office. <laughs> oh, like, yeah. I mean, like, I, I just... Hell, yeah. Yeah, dorks and nerds. Like, bring them on. Make Congress dorky again. <laughs> <laughs> Alex, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, you. you can follow Alex on Twitter, at Alex Gangitano, and you can read her stories this on Roll Call. Thanks so much. the Bill Press Show. Hey, everybody. This is Bill Press. Thanks for listening to the Bill Press and Friends podcast. And now, do yourself a favor. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Here's what you do. Just search for The Bill Press Show. Then you can take us with you and listen in anywhere you go. And you'll get new shows from us as soon as they're posted. And one more thing. If you really enjoy Bill Press and Friends, please help us grow by telling a friend, writing a review, and giving us a rating on iTunes. It's so great to have you on board. Many thanks. you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Welcome back to The Bill Press Show. I'm Jason Dick. I'm guest hosting. Uh, I'm the Roll Call Leadership and Enterprise Editor. Uh, I'm still trying to figure out what that means six years later or however long I've had the job. And I am joined in this half hour by our legal affairs staff writer, Todd Ruger. Welcome, Todd. Thank you. Good to be here. Uh, as, as you said when you came in, speaking of dorks and, and nerds, uh, we're going right. to talk about the courts. <laughs> here comes the law nerd. <laughs> uh, but first, we're going to turn it over to Peter for the full court press. This is the Full Court Press. Yes, indeed. Just a couple of other stories making news. This story is completely bonkers. This is a story about Diana Volatich. She's a teacher down in Florida, and she is all about the three R's, reading, writing, and racism. She actually hosts a podcast all about white nationalism. In fact, from a podcast in February 26th, She interviewed a guest who complained about diversity in schools and dismissed the idea that, quote, a kid from Nigeria and a kid who came from Sweden are supposed to learn exactly the same. I just want to point out again, she is currently a teacher 
teaching in Florida. Get that woman a firearm. Get that woman exactly. That's <laughs> that's what we need. Yeah, she doesn't need to lose her job. She needs a she needs a pistol apparently. Uh, no word on uh, how long she will be there at the middle school. Uh, but parents found the podcast. Parents wrote to the school. People are very upset. They're looking into it. We're not sure if she's going to get to keep her job. Or not. Where, where in Florida, Peter? Just out of, out of curiosity. Uh, I'm glad you asked, Jason. I'm not sure, actually. I don't see it in the story here. Um, but, you know. Oh, Citrus County School District, which, again, I've lived in Florida. I'm not sure where that is. So, uh, Speaking of teachers, by the way, in West Virginia, the teachers are striking for yet another day. We thought this was over. Last week, we had the big announcement. It was over after they said they were going to get a 5% raise. Well, that is not exactly the case. The state legislature did not meet their demand for higher pay and better benefits over the weekend, despite the fact that the governor came out and said, yes, we're going to make this happen. Remember, this is all 55 counties in West Virginia. 20,000 teachers uh, are still out. And the problem is, as the teachers have pointed out, this is one of the reasons that they're striking, there aren't many substitute teachers. There are literally hundreds of substitute teacher jobs that are not filled because the pay is so stinking bad that even if the state wanted to say, well, fine, stay on strike, we're going to bring in these substitute teachers, they don't have enough. So the kids are going to stay home now for an eighth straight day. Uh, we'll see where this ends. What, this what could is- possibly go wrong? What could possibly go wrong? Go wrong. Go wrong. I mean, look, Bill has made this point, too, right? Like, they've made so many tax cuts that favor, you know, the coal industry in West Virginia and bigger corporations. And when you keep doing that, well, don't be so surprised when you don't have enough money to actually pay your teachers. Right? West Virginia is 48th in the nation in terms of teacher pay. Even if they had gotten that 5% raise, it would have gone up to... 47th so like there are there are a lot of problems there in west virginia they still don't have worked out and we talked last hour about the oscars all the big winners the shape of water was the big winner uh winning best picture and best director but meanwhile what's in the theaters what turned out uh, to be number one at the box office any guesses Black Panther. The Black Panther yet again wins with $65.7 million over the weekend. That puts it at $500 million domestically. It is the 10th largest domestic release of all time. That's how big that movie is. They thought that it might get some competition from the uh, that movie Red Sparrow, the Jennifer uh, Lawrence movie. Uh, not even close. It brought in $17 million. Russia right fatigue, there. I think. Russia fatigue, yeah, exactly. <laughs> kind of hard to get excited about that. So the Black Panther uh, continues to be dominant. We'll see just how far it goes. Take the Bill Press Show anywhere you go. Download our free podcast, search for the Bill Press Show on iTunes, and catch the highlights from every show. Welcome back. I am joined. I'm Jason Dick, and I am joined by my colleague Todd Ruger uh, in studio. Todd, thanks for coming on the Bill Press Show. Sure. Yeah. Great. Um, also, wanted to mention that you can follow Todd on Twitter at Todd Ruger. Uh, he is a, a 
not quite as prolific as the president, say, uh, but does does weigh in not just on his own stories, but uh, on some of the legal issues of the day, uh, quite quite wittily, I might add. Thanks. So I, I try not to re- to make it too much of an echo chamber, so I just do. You know, my slice and get out. So I'll, I won't be very obtrusive in your in your Twitter feed. <laughs> I, um, I appreciate that. As a, as a consumer, I appreciate that. You're welcome. So Todd, um, let's. We've got you have uh, been just slightly busy uh, lately over the last. I mean, certainly over the last year. I mean, there's a lot of movement covering legal affairs, particularly when it comes to the courts and so forth. Uh, but lately, you have been particularly busy also in covering some of the legal issues with firearms. Uh, so. Uh, one of the stories that you wrote last week, amid the you know several Supreme Court decisions and so forth, there's also several things happening on the on the floor of the United States Senate where they were confirming more judges, was some of the more likely or unlikely scenarios with gun legislation. Uh, so let's talk about that a little bit. And and you had the unfortunate uh, it, it, uh, happenstance of publishing that story right as Trump started to talk uh, in, the, right. in the cabinet room. Uh, so Whoops. I read the story, Todd. Well, yeah, yeah but I, I mean, the, the thing about it is I, I published a story that basically said, there's not going to be much that gets done. Uh, when you look at the landscape of, mm-hmm. of legislation out there and the, the the history you say ah oh, you know really there's very little hope for for a meaningful gun gun legislation to get through and so then Trump has his his meeting at at the, take, the White House <laughs> take take was, guns away from people right, right now which was, it was it was an, it was amazing I mean when I look at that meeting I I think like this is almost sort of this what what people thought Donald Trump could be you know he 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 calls in the lawmakers. He says, this is a big issue. We're going to get this done. You know, the NRA, they've been influential. Well, you're afraid of the NRA. You know, he, he took all the – but wh- where it falls short is the Republicans in the room were, were sort of like, well, this is, this is not ever going to happen. I mean, <laughs> you know, adding assault rifle ban to, to this, this Republican bill we have on background checks. Well, the background check bill has already failed in 2013. Right. It failed. In, a, in a Democratic Senate, right. much less a Republican Senate. Right. So, so adding assault. I mean, this is going nowhere. So, um, so it did get Diane Feinstein very excited, though. It, as it as did. Every, anyone who has seen yeah. a, a a gif of that moment, uh, like has the, seen, the she, hand she, rubbing. Yeah, yes. the hand rubbing. She's like, ah, you know, <laughs> and because you know she's got a, she may have a fight on her hands uh, on on her liberal flank. So she would love right. to. Get an assault weapons ban, which she, you know, was one of the original co-sponsors in the 1990s of that. So, so yeah, so I wrote this story, which Donald Trump then stepped on. But the story <laughs> remains true, Thanks which is— Because Trump. <laughs> right, because there, there's really—the the outlook is, is not that great. Right. Uh, even with the president who has some—you so, know, has expressed urgency on doing something about this and has now since backed off. You see him slowly backing off. A lot of people liken what happened uh, at the White House to what happened during the immigration debate about DACA, where— he said, you know, he brought everybody there and was going to lead, and then pretty much his his version of the DACA fix was the one that got the the least amount of votes when it right. finally got to the floor. Um, and so you've got, you know, he, he Trump's focus was on the, the the bill by Toomey and Mansion to expand background checks to internet sales this and gun shows. Pat Toomey, Republican from Pennsylvania, Joe Manchin, uh, Democrat from West Virginia. Correct. And yeah. and as we mentioned, that one has already failed, and and so. You're looking at a couple other pieces that have the broader support. One is is Fix Nix, which is the the instant criminal background check for buying guns. This is not Nick's Seafood in Baltimore. Correct. Right. Okay. Yes. This is, which this is needs no other, fixing. Right. Uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> this is a, a, a system that one of the 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 
uh, people that shot uh, in Sutherland Springs, Texas, mm-hmm. he was not supposed. He was supposed to be flagged for not purchasing a gun. Mm-hmm. Uh, it didn't happen, and so now there's an effort to say to everybody, "Hey, you know how you're supposed to to put people on this list so that they right. can't buy guns? You really need to do that." And so to 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 uh, pr- promote them to do that and to to punish them for not doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not actually expanding any gun laws. And then. And, um, and we should mention, too, that, I mean, this isn't just, like, a bunch of, like, commies from, like, Connecticut and California who are behind this bill, right? I mean, like, this is right. John Cornyn uh, is the Senate Majority Whip. He's a Republican from Texas, uh, and he is the lead co-sponsor with Chris Murphy, a Democrat from, from Connecticut, on this Fix Nix bill. I mean, it, it's it has bipartisan support, and Correct. it's not, like, not even all Republicans are aboard it, which is kind of weird because the, their own whip is saying, like, this is a good idea. Right. Well, right. there's, well, I mean, that brings up, I think, a, a great little laser focus on gun politics in the Senate because uh, Cornyn is out there selling this bill, saying we have to do something, right. and I don't want to go home empty-handed uh, to my constituents. And he's from Texas. Mm-hmm. The shooting happened in Texas that's, that prompted this. And um, and he's a member of the leadership. So now you have a member of the leadership going out there and saying we have to do something. And also sitting right next to Trump at this at this thing Correct. on Wednesday. Correct. Yeah. So, but on the other and and you have the Democrats on board because they're they're saying yeah hey let's strengthen uh, this background the existing background check. Let's it's not strengthening. It's basically just making sure they do it. Um, but but from a from a republic po- Republican point of view, it's it's pretty much the least you can do. And still say you did something, so it, it's a way to take the heat off. They could of probably them. do less. Right? Yeah, they could probably. Well, well, yeah, you <laughs> we, can. We're going to get rid of bump stocks in October, and like that still hasn't. But happened. see, I would see, I would argue that get, getting rid of bump stocks is actually a, a bigger step. Mm-hmm. It's actually mm-hmm. it's actually saying this is something that you can buy now, ban, and right. now you can't. Right. Whereas the the background check fix nicks is. Hey, let's you know make how it work better, right? You know yeah. how you can't. You're not supposed to have bought guns. Well, let's make sure that you're not supposed to buy guns and and get people to do their jobs. This basically. is and it, this actually this is the heart of the NRA's like message is that we have enough gun laws on the books. We just need to make them work better. Correct. Yeah, that's 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 part of their their um thing. The and and so you've got Democrats who are on board, but they also say this isn't enough. I mean, we have we have to actually. May, you know, maybe close some of these what they call loopholes mm-hmm. on on how people can get guns without going through the background check. Like system. going to a gigantic gun show at a convention center. Yeah, well, the, yeah. <laughs> well, the, there's a lot. The, you know, the the NRA and and uh, people who like um, who like guns all have an answer for all these. Right. It's it gets mired down very quickly, uh, and and so you have a a, a bill that is. You know, I guess I would consider it the least you could do and still mm-hmm. say you're doing something that the Republicans are putting forward. And even that, as you said, has has opposition from Republicans. There's uh, Mike Lee, uh, Rand Paul. Um, One of your favorite senators, John Neely Kennedy. <laughs> that's right. Um, from a uh, Republican from Louisiana. What did he say? Because that was in your story, too. Well, Kennedy um, Kennedy is getting a reputation among uh, the Capitol Hill press corps as sort of a, a king st- of the aphorisms. Straight, straight talking, <laughs> you know, southerner. Um, and uh, and we're not, not willing to not not unwilling to criticize his own party. And and in this bill, he says, "Look, why are we doing this? If people aren't doing their jobs and reporting these infractions to this database, so that people don't get guns, 
maybe we should fire them for not doing their job. Why are we going to pass legislation that gives states states who who follow the law get more money? You know, why are we doing that? Just fire people that aren't doing their job. And so he's kind of got it from uh, a fundamental uh, argument with with what the bill does. Is there any evidence that people are are coming to him and whispering? Is there like? You don't get it. It's a fig leaf. We can just like we can just hold it up and say we did something. <laughs> Come well, on, bi- John, work with us. <laughs> the big, the big. There's a big looming problem with the fix Nix bill, though, uh-huh. which is it's already passed the House. Right. But when it passed the House, the House added a concealed carry reciprocity right. provision, which means that if you give a concealed carry permit in Texas. Then you can carry your gun to any state or Virginia into D.C. Right, right. <laughs> say so. So the you know the the uh, people who criticize this say, well, you're going from a state with lax gun laws. Maybe for some reason they mm-hmm. have lax gun laws. Like in Texas, there's ranchers. They need to shoot coyotes. You know, whatever. Let's have lax more lax gun laws and make it easier to carry your gun around. And in D.C., they they have more strict gun laws because they want to curb crime. They have different not as things. many coyotes. Right. So it really it takes away this sort of federalism argument where each state gets to control how, how guns are carried in, and, and makes it a national sort of the loosest standard right. is is the standard. And and so this is, um, I think, uh, Senate Minority Leader uh, Chuck Schumer said this is the NRA's top legislative priority. So you have a bill that like, hey, a lot of senators like and, and let's get on it. It really doesn't do much. Let's do, let's just at least get this done. But still, there's on on the House side, there's attached this thing that's like a poison pill for for Democrats that they don't want to vote for. And even even Trump during um, the White House meeting said, you know, that's never going to pass. Take out that concealed carry part. Take that out. The problem with that was, well, that's that was the one sort of bargaining chip. Right. That they had like, (laughs) we'll we'll do this. We'll do this other gun thing if you do concealed carry reciprocity. And now that's that's off the table. So you've you've basically just got back to a standstill and maybe the Senate will vote on something. Maybe it won't. If it does, it might not pass the House. The House doesn't have any sort of reason to act right now. They uh, uh, Paul Ryan has said we're going to focus on how the, the law enforcement uh, aspect allowed this to happen and let this guy get guns and, and get through. So so it's not looking great right well, now. I mean, and, and the, I guess that's that's the thing, too, is that the, you know, Trump, like, kind of masterfully, you know, kind of played to his audience. He play, he he showed that he was doing something right in the in this meeting. Right. He sat there, you know, kind of was, you know, folded arms and and just kind of said, "You're afraid of the NRA. What are you doing?" And and it seemed like some of the Republicans are getting to know this routine. Some of the ones who have done, who have worked with him, maybe Cornyn and and, and folks like that. Uh, there, there was uh, not not everybody seemed to get it that they, I mean there, there was this, this uh, John Rutherford who's a Republican from Florida uh, he he's a former sheriff and he seemed to be arguing with the president and and it was you know like the, like he he didn't understand what was happening that this was this was about Trump sort of inserting himself and saying like look at look at I'm doing something and really what he was doing is he was throwing Congress under the bus saying like I'll sign anything knowing right. that they probably won't sign anything. There were a couple of great moments from that meeting where like. The look on John Cornyn's face was, oh, dear God. <laughs> and the look on Diane Feinstein's face was like, oh, dear God. <laughs> like, they were both just kind of like, it was so bizarre. And I think that it's telling that after the meeting, uh, Senator uh, Ben Sass came out. It was just like, okay, all right. Th- look, like, whatever, we, we can have this gun debate, whatever. But what Donald Trump is saying is, take the guns first 
and then we'll go through due process, right? Like, which is what Republicans were horrified that Barack Obama was going to do for eight years. Like, this is what they thought was going to happen. We're going to round up the guns. Can you imagine if Barack Obama on national television <laughs> had said, I take to, the guns away and we'll figure it out later? I have to stop doing this. I have to stop <laughs> imagining what if Barack Obama had just done this because, like, it, it will make your head explode. So what if Barack Obama had paid off a porn star? What if? <laughs> I mean, I think that, that that what you're talking about illustrates uh, a, a new reality with Trump, which is what you were kind of getting at, which is he said this thing about due process and the Second Amendment, which is, uh, you know, make, making conservatives' heads explode. Right. But they, they also say, well, you know, let's just wait a few days because <laughs> he, the president on television said something right. <clears throat> about policy, but... He, he probably didn't mean probably it, or he probably mean. doesn't understand what he was saying. Somebody will go to his side and tell him, oh, by the way, that that whole due process thing is kind of important to your base. And right. and and so the, this the, the, the meeting turns out to be really somewhat entertaining to watch. But ultimately, when it comes to legislation that moves through the Hill. Probably not. Probably not. Right. Now, speaking of things that actually are moving uh, on, on the Hill, you also cover the judicial branch and particularly how... Congress, how the Senate approves people in the in the, in the judicial branch. Um, one of the, I, I I do feel like we we do a very good job at at CQ and Roll Call of covering this um, because it it is relatively undercovered. I mean, there are a lot of vacancies at the federal courts, uh, a little over a hundred, hundred and twenty. Yeah, there's still a lot out there. Still, right. still quite a few. Um, there was a big backlog. That, I mean, there's a backlog that develops all the time because, as a, as a whole, population is aging. Most people who arrive at a judgeship are already older uh, because they've been, been they've had a career that leads them to that. Um, and then in the last two years of the Obama administration, the Republicans basically put the almost put a complete halt to the to the system. I think they. They uh, confirmed a total of fifteen judges, or something, something like that. It was that. a historic right. low. Yeah, yeah, it, it was. It was very low, and the backlog kept growing because people were like, "I've been doing this a while. I, I'd like to not do this anymore. I'd like to just retire." Uh, so, in in the meantime, I mean, we we always focus on Gorsuch. Uh, you know, people in 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 like on a broader level, but the circuit court level, which is really where a, a, a lot of decisions, a lot of precedent is made. Uh, the the Republicans have been filling that court like very quickly, and also at the district court level, which is the the busiest of all like the levels of the, the judiciary, is uh, is is being stacked up. This week, the today, the, uh, we're we're going to see uh, more movement on three district court nominees. Um, and even though like Democrats are saying this is court packing, you know, and some of the critics, is it really? Because aren't some of these nominees Obama nominees also? Well, yeah, I mean, the, well the. The court packing thing is uh, one of those um, definitions that shows you how partisan language can be depending on who's in power. Right. Um, when the when the Democrats were uh, when Obama was in and Democrats had it, court packing as defined by Democrats was adding judges to a court in order to influence the total outcome of that court. So right. court packing would be adding three new Supreme Court justices. So now that there are twelve, and you can put your three people in there and swing the balance. But now court packing, according to Democrats, is you know filling the filling the court with your your type of judge. So it, court packing is hard to define or mm -hmm. moving definition. But yeah, the, there are some district court judges that that um, Obama, when he went when he was picking judges, went through a process that 
consulted with the state senators. And so, like, let's say, for instance, in Tennessee, you've got a couple of Republicans and the Republicans approve of a nominee in that state. They went through that whole thing. And then for the last couple of years, McConnell shut down, uh, for the most part, judicial nominations in the Senate. Even not even to the point where they, they weren't bringing up people for votes who had the support of both Republican senators. Correct. Uh, Senator Lamar Alexander from Tennessee was one of those who was kind of urging, can't we just vote on everybody agrees on this right. this nominee? So so Trump, uh, when he took over, went back to these states and the Republican senator said, well, we already like this person that's been right. nominated. Right. And so, and as long as- Because the, the previous administration asked us about it and we gave them names and right. these are the names that we gave. So just- Go ahead. <laughs> well, and as long as they passed, um, you know, Don McGahn, the White House counsel, as long as they passed his test mm-hmm. and, uh, and uh, you know, I think Trump has largely... Like being his son. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> Trump has largely given him, uh, you know, some some large leeway to uh, to, to pick the, the judges that he mm-hmm. wants. Um, and so, so, yeah, some of them are going through and, and but Democrats, you know, with, with large bipartisan majorities, mm-hmm. Democrats are... Still making them go through the hoops, uh, the procedural hoops that take up floor time. Mm-hmm. They're still mad about Merrick Garland. Um, this was Obama's nominee to replace correct. Scalia, who never even got a hearing. Yeah, right. so he he was he was stalled in the Senate for nine nine or ten right. months, and, and then transmogrified into Neil Gorsuch, correct? Like in a, like in a David Lynch movie, just, right? Yeah. So so the way that you know the, you you know that's the most visual part of McConnell's. Um, play at the end of the Obama administration was to hold the Supreme Court seat open, and and now he's put. Uh, a Republican uh, nom- presidential nominated nominated appointee on there, just like that, it's happening at this at the circuit court level, mm-hmm. and they and McConnell has made this uh, a really important part of his uh, work as the majority leader. Mm-hmm. They have uh, twelve appeals court nominees in Trump's first year, which was a record, mm-hmm. uh, and then they've at- since added a couple more, and there's there's one or two that are ready to go uh, on the floor pretty soon. So. And and the 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 thing too that when you know the right now Congress is kind of like boy what are we going to do we got this like deadline to you know fund the government the coming up on March twenty third the, the for the fiscal year that started in October of last year um, so there isn't a ton of legislation that's being considered which only gives them more time to do these nominees so it's it's this weird I mean if you're I guess I guess if you're a Democrat it's it's this weird catch-22. Like, do you really want them considering, like, repealing the Affordable <laughs> Care Act or or doing, like, th- these sort of things or just, like, you know, kind of confirming a bunch of judges, maybe half of which you probably don't have any problem with? Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, the the, the one, you know, one consideration they might have is I don't know what the odds are. I, I haven't read the latest about the Republicans maintaining control of the Senate. But mm-hmm. if the Democrats take control of the Senate, I think you're largely going to see a, a shutdown of of the judicial confirmation process, mm-hmm. so I think they're they're sort of like getting while they can, mm-hmm. um, and and front loading Trump's term with with that sort of thing, and then if they maintain control for the second half of Trump's term, then they can, um, then they can move on to other legislation or something, and they, or feel secure. But right now they've they've done a lot of the appeals court judges. That was clearly their focus. Right. Uh, and and you know like a great example of why it's important is uh, one that's coming up. Uh, Kyle Duncan, Fifth Circuit, uh, he over, would oversee three states, including Texas and Louisiana, um, where and, and Mississippi, where a lot of um, legislation is coming out about uh, you know after the same-sex marriage decision, 
who gets to do what, who gets to adopt, who's on paperwork, what, whether a government official can uh, can re- decline to do something for a same-sex couple based on their religious beliefs. And the Fifth Circuit, it's, it's almost like the mirror image of the Ninth Circuit, in, which is like West Coast-based California pr- prominently, where like if you, if you can get, if you're a conservative and you can get something like the, <laughs> in the Fifth Circuit, you feel, you're feeling pretty good about it, that you're going to get a, a, a favorable rating because there's a lot of conservative judges in those areas, much like liberals would prefer to work with the Ninth Circuit. Right, and that, and then Texas has uh, Texas filed their challenge to the DACA DAPA program mm-hmm. there that ultimately right. prevented uh, Obama from implementing that in the last part of his term, and they filed a new Obamacare challenge there based on a, a provision in the tax playing bill. the hits. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> so you know you've got a, a, a Trump nominee appointee that that is going down there, and he's got a, a lot of controversial statements in his past. For instance, he opposed. The same-sex marriage case, the decision he he was openly uh, against that, and so that has a lot of the the liberal-leaning organizations mm-hmm. saying, "Well, this is this is going to solidify for the rest of Kyle Duncan's life somebody on the bench who doesn't see things uh, from our perspective right. uh, on on gay rights, and and uh, this is going to be terrible for people living in those states." Because the Fifth Circuit, while it's not the Supreme Court, it does have the final say in a lot of cases. Right. So. Um, so that that's why this is such a big battle. But like you say, many, some of them are, are are holdover Obama nominees that they're going through now at the district court level. We just have a couple minutes left, but uh, let's talk a little bit about another part of your beat. It's like this: we don't, we <laughs> we can't contain it in a thirty minute like segment. Uh, it, it's so vast. Um, Jeff Sessions, the Attorney General of the United States. Uh, according to Donald Trump, aka Mr. Magoo. Uh, although I, I would argue, I would argue that of of the of the cabinet people who serve on Donald Trump's cabinet, I would nominate Wilbur Ross to be right. most likely to be mistaken for Mr. Magoo. Um, you can YouTube it out there. Uh, you can you can you can Google Mr. Magoo. <laughs> Mr. If Magoo was a cartoon if, character. If, yeah. if you're under uh, forty. <laughs> um, but uh, strained relationship there. Um, have you seen? I mean. You know, th- there were signs of support for Sessions from senators, uh, from from his former colleagues. The first go round when when Trump was kind of going after him last summer. Um, are, are you seeing any any kind of reaction to this latest sort of assault on Sessions uh, that that Trump has instituted in the, in the last week or so? Been like, I mean, it just, it just seems like Trump is like super pissed at him again. Right. I mean, I think uh, I, I think it's an interesting situation that that, for instance. Um, Democrats find themselves in with Sessions because there's this the Mueller probe is going on and uh, the original sin of of Sessions in Trump's mind basically was you recused from overseeing the Russia investigation and he he feels betrayed by that and and that is sort of this current undercurrent of all right. of all what he's saying and so if if he fires Jeff Sessions he could put somebody else in. Uh, who may have a lot more sway over the Russia probe because right now not recuse, he would know the one thing you right. don't do is recuse yourself from the Russia probe. Correct, <laughs> correct. And so right now you have uh, Rod Rosenstein, who's uh, a, you know Trump put in there, but is is also a, a longtime prosecutor mm-hmm. with a, 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 a great reputation uh, on the Hill, and um, who has so far been been defensive of of Mueller saying that everything that he's doing is right. going through me and it's fine I'm approving it um and so which you, must have trump nuts too you know like <laughs> that's yeah. not what he wants to hear right <laughs> and and so you know there 
Sessions can be very irritating to Democrats on the Hill. He was when he was in the Senate. Mm-hmm. He was a major sticking point on a lot of a lot of things to do with criminal justice. For instance, um, the criminal justice overhaul that people are talking about, sentencing reform, mm-hmm. prison reform. Uh, he was a major hurdle to that right. when he was in the Senate. Now he's attorney general. And Grassley, a bipartisan group, mm-hmm. they say they've got a supermajority of senators to back this bill. And Jeff Sessions wrote a letter to them saying the Trump administration doesn't like this bill because right. of the sentencing aspect. So so Grassley had a little bit of a rant during a hearing about Jeff Sessions. Like, I, you know, I, you had a very difficult confirmation hearing. You had a... Uh, you, you know, you you were we stuck uh, up for you. Jeff. We stuck up for you, and <laughs> and then you write this letter, and you know how hard it was to get disagreement. So so he's irritating to them, but at the same time, I I think that there's this this desire to say, well, he's the attorney general now, and and the White House should not be interfering. And so there so there's a little bit of a defense of Jeff Sessions right. because that's mo- that's preferable to the idea of the chaos of of having to go through a new attorney general right. and who's conducting this probe and Mueller and and tainting the whole. Process. Process. So, um, yeah, he, you know, Jeff Sessions has has some critics, but right now I think most <laughs> people just want him to stay in there. <laughs> Todd, we're going to have to wrap it up, but thank you very much for uh, stopping by the Bull Press Show and talking about uh, uh, not even close to an exhaustive <laughs> list of what you have to cover on That's a right. daily basis. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. Download our podcast, search for The Bill Press Show on iTunes, and remember to rate, review, and subscribe. This is The Bill Press Show. Welcome back to The Bill Press Show. Uh, We are in our last segment, as uh, evidenced by the sort of prog rock slash new wave uh, intro music. It's really great, Peter. We're really showing our age here. It's like, is that the police or the psychedelic furs, you know? (laughs) Uh, Joining me in this half hour is Alex Rogers. He covers... The Congress and particularly the Senate for National Journal, and you can follow him on Twitter, A Raj DC. Not A Rod, A Raj DC. Alex, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, so let's let's talk a little bit about um, what we're what we're going to see in the next few weeks uh, as as Congress has another deadline, March twenty third, to fund the government. Uh, we are uh, almost six months into the fiscal year, and we still don't have any kind of per, you know solution. Uh, for this, because this will this will make a nice segue into some of uh, some stories that you've written recently about um, the the political spectrum. Uh, but let, let's let's set it up first with talking about the agenda right now. Where are we? I mean, I, I you know I was up in the hill. We were hanging out a little bit last week, and not a ton of talk about this March twenty third deadline to fund the government. No, I think these other huge cultural debates over guns and immigration have really been taking over the, the national conversation and what we're talking about on Capitol Hill. But you're right. There's this major deadline coming up again, uh, March 23rd. The government has been on these stop gaps again and again and again and again. And they're trying to, to finally actually pass a, a real permanent solution here, um, appropriating funds for the government uh, through the next fiscal year. Mm-hmm. And uh, as, as evidence of how late it's getting is that the president has already submitted his proposed budget for the next fiscal year. And this week is just chock full of hearings about next year's budget, yeah. <laughs> the the fiscal year 2019 budget. So it's getting like this year itself is getting sort of long in the tooth. 
What are the big issues that are? I mean, like we there there's a possibility that immigration, guns, you know, might might be part of this big package that they hope to wrap things up. What are some of the other big issues that we might see them try to you know address with this? big piece of legislation because for the most part that's gonna, that might be the last train in town right right I, I think that there's still uh, hope among uh, Democrats and some Republicans that immigration gets um, a ride on on this massive appropriations bill mm-hmm. the president announced or the administration announced last fall that they would rescind the DACA program on March 5th starting today starting today. And the that, court said not really. Right. The courts have tied up that decision, but there's um, still the, the legal fate is of 700,000 young people who came into the country illegally uh, with their parents. The, the, their legal fate is still uncertain. And right. so Congress wants to provide some certainty in providing either the legal status or a path mm-hmm. to citizenship. And the way in which that they can actually maybe solve this really contentious debate is by adding it onto a must-pass vehicle by right. March 23rd. Which presents its own problems because you're not really supposed to legislate on on appropriations bills. That's a little bit of wonkery uh, for for the audience out there. Uh, but they find they usually find a way to you know, if, especially if something's really popular, to waive that rule. Um, but this is like a, I mean, the immigration. I mean, like this is all we could talk about for a while. And we have some. I mean, there, the DACA program, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. Um, it it's incredibly popular. I mean, people really don't want to see people mass deported, and um, and there are you know there's a story here and a story there about like say somebody who's been in the military for four years and is a war hero might be deported, or 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 you know somebody in their family, or you might rip apart you know a, a mother and and father who are raising kids in like the suburbs in Omaha or something like that. I mean, this is this is touching a lot of people, but it's almost like that's been put on the back burner because of the gun situation with with Parkland. Yeah, that's right. I thought that it was remarkable that the Republicans expanded it into even a broader debate about reducing legal immigration into the future. Now mm-hmm. we're not even really talking about immigration. We, that that massive debate has been on the back burner, as you're saying, to guns, and that's because of the terrible shooting in Parkland. Yeah, and we've seen. Also, little movement on that issue, too. The uh, red state Republicans that I've talked to in the Senate, like Senator Joe Manchin, for example, West Virginia, up Mm -hmm. for re-election, a guy that you would think would be in the mix for any particular gun debate. I asked him about one particular proposal, a proposal to raise the minimum age for rifle purchasers from 18 to 21. That would, in effect, have banned this particular shooter from actually being able to get that AR-15 that he Mm -hmm. wielded. And he, uh, Senator Joe Manchin, uh, just told me it depends on where the president seems to be. So they're looking to the president for political cover and guidance on what he's actually interested in. And mm-hmm. as we know, he's all over the map. And we've seen him in immig- on the immigration debate and also on the gun debate bring in senators and congressmen uh, and have CNN cameras come in and say, I'm kind of for a bunch of different things. You tell me what to do and I'll sign it. And then later the White House will backtrack from that right. too. So we're still uh, very confused on Capitol of what actually the White House wants to do on both of those issues, and that could complicate the March 23rd uh, timeline. So one one thing I've been sort of fascinated by is that after Parkland, uh, Dick's Sporting Goods, uh, where uh, Nicholas Cruz, the the um, alleged shooter, I mean, he he apparently purchased <laughs> a gun there. They said, 
this it's we're going to raise the the age you know on, and we're not going to sell like these sort of weapons and we're also going to raise the age to 21 to buy other other rifles walmart followed um not not exactly a squishy liberal corporation that uh, was that, that was kind of what was fascinating to me is the dick's announcement came out and there was about a day it was the full news cycle right, right. the full day before walmart did so there was enough time for for a lot of people to freak out and say well i'm never going to dick's again right and then walmart came out i get that like, all the time <laughs> and, then, and then walmart uh walmart changed their minds or changed their policy and it was like oh crap oh oh the world's largest retailer right and and, and a retailer for where a lot of red state republicans do 95% of their shopping. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So then your hands are a little tied because you, you can't boycott, boycott Walmart in a lot of places. Right. I mean, it's the only game in town. Yeah. You know, if, if you want a, either an assault weapon or, uh, you know, some bananas. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, but I, I think. Open your bananas with an assault weapon. <laughs> but in, in, in Georgia, I thought that the, the debate also was fascinating with. Um, Delta. Delta. Right. And so you have Republicans, uh, some of them choosing business and choosing Delta and mm -hmm. saying we side with them, and then other uh, Republicans. Yeah, to, some... to, so to back up, the Delta Airlines said that they were no longer going to honor discounts for NRA members. Yeah. Uh, Delta is headquartered in Atlanta. Atlanta is the world's busiest airport on any given day. It's usually either Atlanta or O'Hare or, or Heathrow in London. Um, the Georgia legislature uh, didn't didn't think too kindly of it. Casey Cagle, who is the lieutenant governor, said, "I'll make sure that you know we don't pass any more tax breaks on jet fuel for Delta." The legislature, I mean, the talk about motivation. I mean, like they, this shows that legislatures and you know legislative bodies can act when they're very motivated. That they pa they pass legislation quickly, too sweet to take away. Uh, a, a, you know, a tax break from from Delta that they would have been able to use to purchase jet fuel to get a tax break on the jet fuel that they uh, that they buy, uh, which I guess airplanes use these days. Uh, and <laughs> and and Delta was like, fine, like our morals aren't up for sale. And so it, it was like, whoa, hold on, like this is like a this is a Georgia company, right. like and like most like not a ton of like super liberal gun control Democrats like are in Delta's boardroom, I would guess too. Yeah, and you saw John Lewis, the Democratic congressman and civil rights hero, say, "I stand with Delta." Right, uh, and I just think that it's remarkable that there are, the Republican Party now has cleaved itself between on uh, business and culture, mm -hmm. and it's it's something that I think is also going to be reflected in a couple of different Senate races, mm -hmm. uh, particularly the uh, Mississippi Senate race between Roger Wicker, mm -hmm. more of an establishment guy now, and Chris McDaniel. Uh, the, the Tea Party bomb thrower who's going to wrap himself in the um, Mississippi state flag, mm -hmm. um, which is going to be a major uh, issue in the primary. And I, I just think that when, yeah. you, when you look at the Delta story, right, like I just think that <clears throat> you look at where the NRA started and where they've come, okay? And this is just objectively speaking, right? The NRA has become a not just a political organization but a, a an arm of Republican politics. It, ju it just has. Uh, I mean, and, it, it's it's almost like the, it it fills the same sort of role that unions do for sure. Democrats. Yeah, that, that they they motivate. You know, they send out flyers. They have like you know sort of tests for candidates whether they'll endorse them or not. They let their people know who are extremely motivated to vote uh, on their issue, like w how to vote. Right. Like, and I re I referenced this uh, a, a week ago or so, talking about like there's a great uh, podcast out there, uh, Radio Lab that they put out their guns episode. Mm -hmm. And it just sort of takes a look and says, 
look, the NRA was started because, like, people used to have to take shooting classes in school, right? And if you're going to have to do that and you're going to get out of school and you're going to have a gun, like, there are certain things you need to know about gun ownership. It wasn't political at all. And it wasn't until, like, the 80s or 90s, more specifically the 90s, that it really started to turn. And then it really jumped into power, like, after Barack Obama was elected. Um, and that was when you really saw saw the NRA become a, a fully political organization. And I think that in the last couple of weeks, you've seen people reclaim, like, there is a place for an organization like the NRA, what it used to be. But we're not going to be beholden to them anymore because they've gotten so far away from what it, it, it was, right? And so Delta, Dick's, Walmart, all these people that are just coming. I saw that Kroger... <laughs> which apparently sells guns in some areas. They um, came out and they were I'm like, from Arizona. It doesn't surprise me. Yeah. I mean, you could buy you could buy a rifle at a, at the gas station right. when I, where I grew up. <laughs> like, I, I mean, I had no idea. I saw Kroger I was like, God, I didn't know Kroger sold guns, but they do in some in some states. <clears throat> and so now they're just sort of saying, like, forget you guys. We're gonna move on. History has moved on. The news is I mean, we've come to this place in news that we have to do something. We're, and and they're like, we're less beholden to Republican office holders. We're more beholden to people who can just buy a ticket on Southwest. Exactly. <laughs> As yeah, opposed exactly, to Delta. Exactly. You know? exactly. <laughs> it's not even a political statement. It's right. just like, look. It's a money statement. Yeah. They think they're going to lose money. Yeah. Uh, and, and they're not worried about the you know people who are claiming a you know a 5% discount on a, on a ticket from the NRA. Yeah. So, so, so Alex, let's um, back to these, you know, these sort of red state Democrats or mm-hmm. red state, you know, sort of politics. It's not just Democrats, as you mentioned, with Mississippi. Um, Chris McDaniel almost beat uh, Thad Cochran uh, back in 2014. Uh, and he, he he's he is a more in, insurgent kind of guy. I won't say populist because it seems like everybody's into populism these days. Even Italy is into populism now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> who would have seen that coming from their history? Oh, um, but... <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry, Italian. No, sorry, it. Italy. <laughs> I love it. Um, but so we have, you know, if is McDaniel, if McDaniel has a shot, and he do, and he does have a, a legit shot. I mean, he came very close to to knocking off Cochran. Uh, Cochran and his team were able to, uh, you know, kind of basically mobilize Democrats to vote for for Cochran over over McDaniel in a runoff election. Um, is is that seat? Possibly vulnerable if McDaniel wins the the nomination, the Republican nomination over over Roger Wicker. I think that's the fear by Wicker supporters. The state is more Democratic than Alabama, mm-hmm. um, but so far we haven't seen somebody like Doug Jones come to the fore. Where right. he, you know, a, a moderate man who has a, a long history um, in the state, who also has deep ties into the African American community. We haven't seen a Democrat like that pop up in Mississippi. Right, um, but. Uh, Republicans in Washington are uh, scared of, of Chris McDaniel, right? I mean, in t- 2014, he really took Cochran by surprise, who hadn't really been raising money, hadn't really been around the state as much campaign as hard as he needed to be. Right. Wicker has prepared for that. He's raised millions of dollars. Former uh, chairman of the National Republican Congress, uh, no, sorry, National Republican Senatorial Committee, right. NRSC, yes. Right. <laughs> Which is something that McDaniel is trying to use right. against Wicker, that he's close to McConnell, he's close to right. leadership, he's been in Washington for too long. But Wicker, if you remember, was part of the 1994, you know, Newt Gingrich, rabble-rousing right. class. He was one of the most, the revolution. Cons- the more Republican con- most revolution. conservative people out there. And now it's not conservative enough to people like McDaniel. Is it, I mean, is it 
not conservative enough, or is this just the opening for people like McDaniel? I mean, is this just a branding thing? That's a good question. I, I think that um, you know the, the Mississippi voter in the primary is going to have to choose if whether or not Wicker is conservative enough and also uh, close enough to Trump. I mean, mm-hmm. this is something uh, that McDaniel is going to have a lot of trouble with because he doesn't have the president's endorsement. Mm-hmm. So beforehand, um, you know, a, a couple of months ago, people were wondering if maybe he would be stronger if. You know, Steve Bannon, back when he was really powerful, you know, mm-hmm. if he had the support of them and their financial backers, the, the Mercer family, maybe then McDaniel would be really strong here. But so far, you've seen what happened to Bannon. Um, and, what happened to and Roy Moore. What happened to Roy Moore. Luther Strange. And he doesn't have the president's <laughs> endorsement. All, 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 but, and, and, and to be fair, I mean, the president endorsed first Luther Strange, who lost, and then Roy Moore, who lost. Um, so a rare think, double whammy, right? At, at a at a minimum, though, too. I mean, Republicans might have to spend money in Mississippi. Like, I mean, talk about like what we have to spend money in Mississippi of all places. <laughs> like, this isn't New York, you know. Like, this isn't California. I mean, like, why? I mean, any any time or effort or money that we spend in Mississippi is something that we're not putting into knocking Claire McCaskill off in New Missouri or John Tester in Montana or Heidi Heitkamp in North Dakota or Joe Donnelly in Indiana. I mean, these are the races that Republicans could actually gain seats in the Senate. And if they're spending time defending Roger Wicker, like this, this could not, this might not bode well for them in those races. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think that, um, Mississippi is a unique situation where they're really concerned about the Republican primary and and who could come out there. But I think that Democrats really have a better chance of winning in another red state that comes to mind, which is Tennessee. Right. Um, the former governor there, Phil Bredesen, won every county last time. Um, well, I guess that was actually a while ago now, 2006, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, but still, he is uh, well known in the state and still pretty popular. So that's actually a real, a real chance or at least a better chance. Right for a Democrat to win in a red state. And this is uh, the, the seat that Bob Corker is, is leaving behind. Uh, you know, there, there was this um, um, sort of drama with Corker. I mean, Corker sort of went head-to-head with the president on a, any number of issues last year, said he was retiring, came to the realization that he wasn't going to win the primary. And then there has been this steady sort of unease within among Republicans that that Bredesen is is like a is a legit candidate, uh, and that they're maybe not so super psyched about Marsha Blackburn, who is the front run, who would be the front runner in in Tennessee, um, and and there was just this dance with Corker, like, hey, maybe he's really not that serious, uh, and 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 there and we'd get these periodic sort of reports of uh, you know. Uh, Francisco Franco is still dead, you know, like Bob Corker is still retiring. Uh, and then and then finally, Corker, you know, just <laughs> finally, he just said, like, no, really, I'm retiring. <laughs> and, and you wrote and you wrote a story about it, kind of debriefing what led to this, where he finally had to just say, like, no, really, like, you know how the door is shut? It's still shut. It's going to stay shut. I'm retiring. <laughs> Let's talk about your story there. So I, I think that Bob Corker's fascinating. He's a two term senator from Tennessee. Senate Foreign Relations Committee chairman, which is a really prestigious uh, perch where, you know, you have secretaries of state come out of and... Former mayor of Chattanooga. Sure. Got some executive experience. Real estate magnet um, in the state. And he has gotten in some of the most high profile battles with the president last year, but has also been able to keep a relationship with the president, golfing with the president, Peyton Manning, being on that short list for secretary of state. Uh Uh, But you're... uh, you're completely right. This this big fight that they had last um, a couple of different times, but last fall in particular, basically closed the door for him mm-hmm. to be able to to run and, and win a primary in Tennessee. 
He said after an NBC report where they found out that the Secretary of State called the president a moron and had considered retiring uh, last summer. Rex Tillerson, uh, noted squishy Rex Tillerson, the former chairman of ExxonMobil. <laughs> Corker comes out and defends uh, Secretary of State, saying that he, among a couple other people, uh, uh, defends the country from chaos. Mm-hmm. And then also said that uh, President Trump has set us on the path of world, two World War Three. So some pretty inflammatory. So when the words. Center for Foreign Relations chairman says that, it's like American Express or, or uh, what was the Morgan Stanley or what, what, what was it like when when Dean Witter says something, people listen, right? EF Hutton, EF Hutton, EF Hutton, yeah. right? <laughs> when Bob Corker says World War Three, people tend to listen, right? And so after that time period, though, he gets back in. Um, tries to develop those relationships again with the White House, trying to get back into their good graces because in in less than three months, decides to maybe change his mind. He reconsiders his decision Mm -hmm. to run again for a third term because he sees that a poll, at least, that that was out there that showed the Republican, Marsha Blackburn, um, losing to the Democrat, Phil Bredesen, by about two points. And no Republican would have gone into this race if Corker had decided to run right. back then. But then after he decides to not do it and he says all these things about the president, Republicans jump into the race and Blackburn uh, takes the lead. When Blackburn sees that Corker's about to actually run, that camp uh, says that it's basically a, a sexist attack, sexism, a right. sexism uh, thing. and Couldn't possibly because she's not as good a candidate. Right. Mm-hmm. And... Then Corker eventually decides, you know what, I'm going to back down. This primary is going to be way too nasty for me, and I'm not going to be able to run. I'm not going to run for a third term. But it was a remarkable dance between the president and one of his high-profile supporters uh, and somebody who was also willing to be a little bit of an antagonist at certain points. But it, it was a foreign policy leader on Capitol Hill taking on the president in some of the harshest terms that he had ever heard. And he decided at the end of the day to back down. Like, I think there's about 5,000 other things I'd rather be doing necessarily, right? <laughs> like, you know, as, as, as even even if the Republicans retain the majority. I mean, there, there's less and less for him to do. Right? Yeah, I, I think that he thought that he was going to be more influential as an advisor to the president and that the, and that the president would hear his advice and take it. Uh, <laughs> and as, as, as we can tell from the laughter behind it, it's, it's impossible. It's impossible to... Uh, you know, control or to maneuver this president, right? Right. Um, yeah. What is it? What What is he gonna? I mean, what does Bob Corker want? Like, he's got tons of money. I, I think he. I, 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 I look at it as actually a, re, a really healthy kind of decision. I mean, 100%. You know, I mean, it, it, 100%. I mean, maybe he, maybe there was a little bit of concern because those, those adults in the room, right? Tillerson, uh, Jim Mattis, the Defense Secretary, H.R. McMaster, the National Security Advisor, John Kelly, the White House Chief of Staff. Maybe the, there was like, okay, there maybe there are enough for adults in the room, and I'm not going to be one of them. So why in God's name would I stick around here? Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I just think it's a, it's a it's a prime example of how Republicans on Capitol Hill are trying to live and to govern under President Trump. Mm-hmm. There's I have 42 House Republicans, I think, who have decided that they're going to either leave the House right. or uh, retire, and. Uh, Senator Corker is just maybe the highest profile example of somebody who's even close to the president and right. still is having trouble working underneath him. So some of these other races that will determine, you know, the 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 Senate landscape. I mean, I, I not that we just don't have time to get into the, the, the House today, but like in in Missouri, you know, we've got Claire McCaskill, who's arguably one of the more vulnerable uh, Senate Democrats. 
And she gets to run against a guy who is now embroiled in this bizarre episode with the governor. I mean, the, the, you know, the attorney general, Josh Hawley, is like the Republicans preferred candidate. And he is now finding himself drawn into this weirdo situation with the governor, Eric Greitens, who's like, you know, tied up his mistress. And, and yeah, <laughs> I mean, I just, it's just it's crazy. I mean, are the is, is this just like the normal cycle of politics or are the Republicans just snake bit in this in this cycle? I think I think it's a it's a great question. But if they can't win in Missouri, where the president won, I think by twenty points, yeah, uh, they're gonna have a really without t- even stepping foot in the state. I think, right? I mean, I, I don't think I don't think he. I mean, he you know, he campaigned in Alabama like five times or something, but it, he didn't even go to Missouri. Right. I mean, when the Senate split fifty one forty nine, and you're having trouble in Missouri, it's going to be hard to say that the Republicans are going to be able to keep the Senate. Yeah. Um, but because you you have a, a better chance for Democrats in Arizona and Nevada to win right. and take back those seats, and then maybe also even Tennessee. So you've also written about Montana, John Tester. I mean, he, you know, he's a he's a wily one himself. He's, he's he wants a third uh, term. Uh, he, but he's also a farmer. You know, he looks like a farmer. He's got a flat top and seven fingers. Uh, you know, I mean, he, he's I mean, he is run, he seems to be running as well as could be expected for a Democrat in a state that Trump, again, won by like 20 plus points. Another example of a Democrat who has been keeping low in the gun control debate because he knows that in Montana, uh it's something that you don't really want to be on the, the forefront for. You don't want to be out there. But he actually has more so than some other uh, Democrats actually been in favor of uh, background checks like the, the Manchin-Toomey bill in mm-hmm. 2013, which would have expanded uh, gun checks to uh, the gun shows and the Internet. Right. So you, you have seen him. He's also portrayed himself a little bit more as a populist mm-hmm. and uh, it'll be an interesting race to watch. Alex, I think we're going to wrap it up there. Thanks for coming by on the Bill Press Show. Thanks so much for having me. You can follow Alex at A-Rodge, A-R-O-G-D-C, not A-Rod, A-Rodge, uh, and on nationaljournal.com. Thanks again. This is The Bill Press Show.